Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, through the miracle of the internet, here I am again in your ear hole. Dr. Christopher Ryan, I'm speaking very close to the microphone, so it probably feels very intimate to you. Like I'm whispering, like I'm hovering over your shoulder, left or right. I'm not sure if I'm the angel or the devil in this scenario, urging you toward good or evil. But I do my best, as I know you do. I'm sitting... Uh, where am I sitting? I'm sitting like way back, um, a bunch of country roads outside of a little, little town called Plains, Montana. I'm overlooking a river. I think it's the South Fork of the Clark River, something like that. It's a pretty big river. There's a swimming hole across the way. I'm at a, one of the most beautiful camping spots I've discovered in the last uh, couple of months on the road, and when I say I discovered, what I mean is that a guy who listens to this podcast, Mr. Ian Stokes, wrote to me a few months ago and said, hey, if your travels take you through western Montana, uh, I've got a great place for you to camp and a swimming hole, you should come check it out. And I took note of that and thought, well, I probably am coming through western Montana. And then I got another note from saying, hey, actually I'm in Thailand now, I'm traveling, um, but my parents have a great place and they're really cool people and you should check them out and also here's a pin to that camping spot I told you about. Super cool guy, Ian, if you're listening Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, anyway, so coming in yesterday, we followed the directions, decided we were going to come here and followed the directions to the um, camping spot, promptly got the van stuck in the sand twice, which sucked. But uh, then we finally found the right spot. And man, it's beautiful overlooking the swimming hole. We can jump off some rocks into the water and... Uh, it's just fantastic ducks out swimming in the river and we saw a bear yesterday not right here at the camping spot but on the way in we saw a bear swimming down the river and um it's just a beautiful area anyway then uh, last night Ian's mom came by the camping spot just wanted to check and make sure we were okay and she's a fascinating woman Doreen uh leads safaris in Africa uh, I guess a couple a year or once a year. I don't. I don't know. But she's been doing it for a long time to Tanzania. Uh, she has visited the Hadzama, uh, Hadza people. She's. Um, I guess she's climbed Kilimanjaro. She's a fascinating woman. Um, planting trees, reforestation, uh, bringing clean water to a school there. She's sort of adopted, and she invited us over. Uh, to have breakfast this morning so we had breakfast with Doreen and Jim and got a tour of their property beautiful beautiful farm if anybody's looking to buy a farm uh in western Montana I, I got a place for you it's very reasonably priced um 
anyway, I don't know. I mean, it's so beautiful that I'm seriously sort of rethinking or, or just, I don't know. I, I have an open mind, but this whole idea of the, the lifeboat that I've talked about before that Daniele and I talked about, I mean, the idea was to do it probably further south. Uh, and that's part of what we're, we're doing on this trip is sort of driving around, looking at places and thinking about it. Um, long, cold winters up here, but it's such a beautiful property. All these little, like a hidden field back here surrounded by trees. And there's a sizable creek running through it uh, that runs all year. And the uh, water table's high, so it's easy to drill wells. They already have wells there. No building permits, so we could put up yurts and teepees and tiny houses and small houses and tree houses and all sorts of things. There's a, a beautiful field that floods once a year in the spring. And uh, we were thinking like, man, we could put stilts in and a boardwalk and have a couple of shelters in there that you could live all year up, up on stilts, like sort of a Balinese or a tropical kind of thing. Anyway, that's that's what's going on right now. I'm in a beautiful spot looking at beautiful, beautiful nature and uh, just feeling great. Speaking of feeling great, this episode is with a woman named Sean Korn. She is a world famous yoga teacher. And uh, she has a fascinating story. Um, Really wonderful, beautiful woman and I mean that in the holistic sense of beauty her energy obviously she's physically beautiful her body's beautiful her face is beautiful her energy's beautiful like everything about her is beautiful and it was a great testament to yoga I guess uh I don't even remember how I met her but she lives in Topanga and uh this is one of the last episodes I did before leaving on this trip and um, it was fantastic. And, and, you know, like so many people who reach the heights of any discipline, what you find is, and maybe this applies to, to other things as well, but a lot of imposters along the way, a lot of, a lot of snake oil salesmen and bullshit artists and but then when you get to the top, the real top, you find humility and sincerity and humor. I don't know. The Dalai Lama makes me think about that phenomenon sometimes. You know, like there are a bunch of Buddhist teachers and I love Buddhism as far as religions go. It's the one I have the most respect for um, that I'm aware of. But it's there's still a lot of people um, teaching Buddhism who take themselves too fucking seriously, in my humble opinion. Just like people teaching anything take themselves seriously because they're transmitting sacred knowledge, don't you know? A lot of people working with psychedelics are taking themselves way too seriously. I think there's a temptation to give yourself credit for the power of what it is that you're transmitting. So the ego gets involved and there's not a clean, you need to be a clean 
pipe where everything flows through and nothing starts accruing to the edges like, you know, cholesterol in an artery that will eventually destroy you. The blood or whatever it is needs to move through cleanly, leaving nothing behind. And I think the temptation to let your ego become involved with what it is that you're transmitting uh, is toxic, but very the, the temptation's very strong. And I, I see this now, and, you know, I, I couldn't have imagined 20 years ago that there would be ayahuasca ceremonies taking place in America, that um, Oakland, California would have legalized um, mushrooms for, for clinical uh, purposes, that, that widespread research would be um, being conducted with the permission of the federal government in, in almost all cases. I, I couldn't have imagined those things. So I'm very, very happy about that. But of course, the downside is that you have a bunch of people out there who are white belts or yellow belts or blue belts walking around pretending they're black belts. And that's not only dangerous for the people that they're working with, who think they have a serious guide to these regions that psychedelics can take you to. It's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for that person, the charlatans. And there's so many. Um, you know, and, and it makes me sad. It makes me sad for everybody um, to see how this is being turned into a movement that is around, you know, it's, it's being Americanized, it's being corporatized, it's being turned into a commodity, and people are getting competitive, and, you know, oh, that place, that's no good, we have the secret, and, oh, you'll experience a miracle if you, you know, come here and pay our price, and if you go there, you'll, blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's strange. It's strange to see how these things happen. But my point is that Sean is at the top of the world of yoga, and she's like the Dalai Lama, clean and pure and doesn't take herself seriously and is just radiating the energy of the discipline itself, which is a beautiful thing to see. So I'm really happy to bring her to you with this episode. Uh, I've got some sponsorships that are starting, I guess, next week. So uh, Sunbasket is one of them. And uh, Lilo, um, I don't know, what do they call themselves? Sex toys, vibrators, whatever. Uh, I'll be talking about them in coming weeks. Uh, another one is Dry Farm Wines. Uh, we've got something going with them that will be starting soon. Um, but this week, uh, no, no active... I'm not pushing anything on you. I wanted to mention that my friend Anya, who's the um, the host of the podcast called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, which I highly recommend you check out. Um, you might want to start with the episode with her father, which I find to be one of the most powerful and beautiful conversations I've heard in a long time. Her dad's gay and... Uh, was out as gay when he married 
her mother and they decided to have children. So it was a, it's a unusual, um, parent daughter relationship. And, um, yeah, they talk through it in very candid and, uh, intelligent and it's a beautiful relationship. So I, I encourage you to listen to it. Anyway, Anya has this apartment in Topanga. She's a neighbor and um, it's available for sublet, uh, I guess, um, through October uh, at least. So that's three months. And then after that, on a month to month basis. So it's a beautiful place. Uh, I've seen it. There's a view that you can't believe out over Topanga Canyon. You can see the mist rolling in over the hills in the morning and uh, the sun setting behind the mountains and this beautiful, beautiful view. Um, it's um, one bedroom, open kitchen, studio kind of place. Uh, it's 2000 a month. That's what she pays. She's just looking to cover her expenses, not trying to make any money. Somebody who she can trust. It's a person or maybe a couple. No kids, for sure. Not enough space. And um, maybe you can borrow her car or she'll work out something if you need a car as well. So anyway, let us know. You can contact me through the, the website, uh, chrisryanphd.com, if you'd like to inquire further about that. I had a strange experience a few weeks ago. I had some. I was having dinner with some friends and... Um, I don't know why I'm, I feel compelled to share this with you, but uh, it, it just seemed like I learned a lesson somehow that I wanted to share with you. But anyway, I was with these friends having dinner and uh, I hadn't seen one of them for a while. And he said, uh, oh, uh, your dad died since I saw you last. I'm sorry. And I said, yeah. yeah. And he said, how are you doing? And without thinking, I said, better than my dad. And a few people laughed and a few people didn't. And it was kind of an awkward moment. And I don't know. I mean, I I just sort of saw an opportunity for a joke coming out of nowhere that nobody would expect me to make, which adds to the humor quotient, I guess. Um, but I also thinking about it later, I, I, I did think about it later that night I, because I realized that I made some people uncomfortable with that joke and confused them. Like, why is this guy joking about his dad who died six months ago or whatever it was? And, um, but what I realized was that that's exactly the kind of joke my dad would have made. And in that moment, in which an observer could easily have concluded that I was minimizing the importance of my dad's death, I actually felt closer to him than I had in a long time. Because that kind of humor is something that we shared so deeply and was like a a way of that I don't know it's just a thing we did together you know like some guys go hunting with their dads or bowl or fix the truck or whatever I I made stupid jokes with my dad I guess uh 
So I don't know. It was it was just a strange thing. It was one of those experiences where you your internal experience is so different from how it looks from the outside. And uh, I guess the lesson is never assume you know what somebody's feeling based upon what they're saying. You know, because sometimes the currents running beneath the surface are going in totally different directions than what you see on the surface. Not profound, I know, probably extremely pedestrian, but I just thought I'd share it with you. I'm going to play you a little song now. This is from a woman who listens to the podcast. She wrote to me and um, sent me a link to some of her music. And I I honestly don't know if I've already played this song on the podcast. I, I just listened to it now and... I think she I think she got lost in the inbox and like I intended to play it maybe I didn't or maybe I did and I can't remember anyway it doesn't matter because it's so good that even if I play it I'm going to play it again uh, her name's Kate Vargas and the song is Rise the Moon man I love this song I love the way she sings I love the way she plays I love the lyrics It's just a really good song. I'll be back to talk to you a little bit more after you hear this. This is Rise the Moon by Kate Vargas. The war is over Someone had said The word's been rattling In my head First is a whisper Then there's a scream Then there's a joke Then there's a dream The dream's been chasing That minute hand Perhaps I believe I'm more willing than I Lifting high enough to win Caught in my leaves Come break, come show Come rise the moon When you call to lay that body down We you bite, we you fight, we you hide I took to listening I took to prayer I may be tired But I ain't scared It isn't fading Or stepping down I'm just tempered to the time Of the end Come 
Listening to her, I maybe I'm totally full of shit here, but I just feel like I'm listening to someone who enters an altered state of consciousness when she sings. I get that with Carsey sometimes, and and you get it with a lot of powerful performers. Um, you know, I think some, probably all, at some point well-known performers learn to fake that magic but sometimes it really comes through because you can't feel it every night when you're on tour you know it's you gotta you gotta learn to fake it um but listening to her i just i feel it coming through it's really nice kate vargas uh, I want to play another song um because this is coming out around the fourth of july and uh, I'm going to be spending the holiday with a guy named Kevin up in Whitefish and his friends. Ran into him in a cafe the other day in Columbia Falls uh, out in the parking lot. I guess he recognized the van and came over and said hello with his his girl and uh, girlfriend, wife. I don't know what their relationship is, but they are uh, really nice people. And they said, hey, what are you doing for the 4th? You should come over. We're doing a barbecue. Some friends coming over. So... That's where I'll be, uh, Whitefish, Montana, on the 4th, if you're listening to this before then. And if you're listening to it after then, I hope you had a great time and didn't blow your fingers off. And if you're not in the U.S. of A., um, you know what I'm talking about. It's a weird it's a weird country over here, folks. The 4th is a strange one, uh, but I think Thanksgiving is the weirdest one, where we celebrate the Indians saving the first Puritans who then killed them and took their land yeehaw uh i wanted to play this song because it came up the other day on my shuffle when i was driving down the road and i was reminded that i have sort of a little tradition of playing the song every fourth of july when i remember or around then it's a song called 
the Good American Life. And it's by another guy who listens to the podcast and contacted me the same way, sent me the song. Uh, I absolutely love it. His name is Ed Dupas, D-U-P-A-S. He's, uh, last I heard, he was in, I don't know, Ohio or Michigan or somewhere out there. I'm not sure where he is these days, but I still love your song, Ed. If you're listening, thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody else who's listening, for listening and for telling your friends about the podcast, if you dig it, which you must because you're listening, right? And uh, for supporting it through Patreon or through the Amazon affiliate link on my page um, or through writing reviews on iTunes or just sending out good vibes in my direction. I appreciate all the support, however it arrives. All right, this is Good American Life. Be sure to listen to the lyrics. There's a story there that many of us will recognize. Ed Dupas. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sean Korn. I will catch you next time. Bye-bye. I wake up in morning the alarm clock tells me when pour a cup of coffee and hit the road again find the nearest freeway yeah i got places to be that sounds like a good american Head to the office or the job side or the mill. Time to make some money, yeah, time to pay some bills. Cause they're charging me for things that I used to get for free. That sounds like a good American life to me. Tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me Now we got ships in the go Yeah, we got them in Japan Got boots on the ground Germany and Afghanistan And they got families and loved ones And kids they ain't never seen That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me Just trying to catch my breath So I can tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me
keep waiting on her whistle And everyone will stop But they keep right on Telling us this room up at the top So I'm getting up tomorrow Guess that's how it's gonna be That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting walking distance away from the first Manson murder. (laughs) I just found out that I live a stone's throw from the first... Who was the... Gary Gary Hinman. Gary Hinman, who was tortured and murdered by the Mansons Mm -hmm. because of some drug deal gone awry, Mm -hmm. apparently, is just down the street from my house. Sean Korn is... Uh, I met you at Wim Hof's party mm-hmm. a week ago or something. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, we bonded over our um, irreverent attitude toward yoga. I think. <laughs> yeah. And that we're neighbors. And we, we're neighbors. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it turns out we're both sort of Manson aficionados. <laughs> yeah. So weird things to bond over. <laughs> yoga and murder. <laughs> Sounds like a good TV show. It's the show. light in the dark. It's a, it's a fine line. You know, I have a weird thing with yoga. I, I like yoga. I, I can't say I've... I mean, I've done yoga in probably 20 cities, but I travel a lot. And I don't have much self-discipline, so I'm not the guy who does yoga himself in the hotel room in the morning, you know? So I keep losing the practice mm-hmm. because I move or I'm on the road or whatever. Um but I like yoga a lot as a practice, but I really don't like the pretentiousness of yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I've ended up having, like, I don't have a lot of conflict in my life, but I've had some, I've had some, like, real conflict with yoga teachers. Uh, understandably, there's an enormous amount of what's called spiritual bypass within the community, meaning that if, if I... Put, if my self-image is dependent upon me being a yoga teacher and that's how I'm perceived, mm. then I don't have to do the work. I look the part, I sound the part, and I get all the authority that goes along with that. And so I see a lot of yoga teachers, a lot of yoga practitioners um, enter into this practice and wear it as a costume to actually avoid having to do the inner work that's required in this practice. And it's messy and it's gritty and it's intense when you really peel back those layers. But like everything, there's there's superficial layers that, that exist within it. And so you see a lot of that. But yoga is magical that way, that someone who's on the path, if they're sincere, and even a tiny little bit sincere, even if they're doing it at first, because they want, they like the image of yoga and it is, you know, perhaps more pretentious. Eventually that mirror gets held up and their ego and their attachments and their, and their self-image is the thing that gets reflected back. 
and they go down a rabbit hole of some deep work that has to be done to dismantle that. But that can take 10 years, 20 years, another lifetime. And so even if someone's just dabbling in yoga, um, I'm always happy because I know if they stay with it, they will have their ass handed to them in the most, in the best way Hmm. that will strip away all of that illusion to expose their true self. Now I could have, what you just said, we could swap out yoga for ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and it would have been exactly the same. You know, I hear the same thing from people who are doing ayahuasca or other psychedelics Mm -hmm. and their ego inflates Mm -hmm. initially Mm -hmm. a lot of people think they're the next coming of jesus or you know they've they found wisdom and they're running around telling everyone but if at a certain point they get broken down and shown their own weaknesses and you know the terror of the soul and all that is there do you look at apparently you see yoga as a spiritual discipline it's not exercise it's not stretching you see it as a Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, the physical part is a byproduct. You get stronger. You right. get more flexible when you practice. That's just the way that it goes. But there is some mother magic that's happening within the practice. And magic is defined as shifting energy at will. And that's what's happening when you're moving and you're breathing and you're, the contraction moves into expansion. Something shifts psychologically, emotionally. And that um, the, eradicate, the, the eradication of that tension lets us get out of our heads and into our hearts where our experience becomes more abstract, more symbolic. Mm. And so, yes, it is a deep spiritual, not a religious practice, a deep spiritual practice when you're ready for it. Some people Mm. are so cloaked in tension and in armor as part of their self-protection that it takes years just to chip away at that for their nervous system to regulate enough to feel comfortable to approach what's on the other side of that tension. What's on the other side of that tension is liberation. But if you're, you've experienced trauma or if you're just socialized to stay in control, then you have no evidence that the release of that tension is actually going to feel freeing. It's actually going to feel scary. So most people resist it. And I don't blame them. You know. And once you do let go, everything changes. How did you get into yoga? Um, I got, back, I got into yoga back in the 80s. Uh, I, I grew up in New Jersey, moved to New York City, and I lived on the lower, I lived in the East Village on 10th and, um, on Avenue B between 12th and 13th. Did you ever go to Life Cafe? Well, that's my story. Oh, nice. Because I was a waitress at Life Cafe. No shit. Starting from 1984 um, until around... Uh, yeah, until 1989 or 90. Um, you know, you and I have met. Uh, really? I used to go there every weekend for brunch. For real? Yeah, I lived. Live? I, I lived on uh, what was it called? Just Stanton Street, just yeah, below yeah, Houston. Yeah, yeah. and uh-huh. like a between A and B. Really? Yeah. Well, I probably served you mega burritos and tahini and yeah. brown rice. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And yeah. so I was a waitress there. Um, huh. So I. I at 17, and the man who owned Life Cafe, his name was David Life, and he was like the grandfather of the art scene at that time, even though he was probably 34 years old. Well, David Life went on to open Jiva Mukti Yoga, and his partner, Sharon Gannon, who was also his partner at Jiva Mukti, she was the head waitress. And um, Eddie Stern, who went on to open the Ashtanga Institute in New York City, the Ashtanga Shala, he was the delivery boy. So <laughs> no back kidding. in the 80s was my first introduction to yoga through these three people. And I was, I was not raised with any religion. I would have uh, identified as an atheist, had a lot of prejudice around uh, anything to do with spirituality mm. because I 
uh, even though I was raised agnostic, the environment I grew up in was Christian, Catholic, you know, a little Jewish. But the God that I picked up from my friends and from my environment was very patriarchal. It was really God-fearing. God showed up when you messed up. And I wanted nothing to do with that and nothing to do with any kind of spiritual practice. But I couldn't reconcile spiritual practice with these three people because they were hip and cool and interested and activated. And I admired them. And they were deeply into yoga. So something shifted for me. I started to pay attention a little bit more to the things that they talked about, not just yoga, but veganism and um, holistic medicine, uh, all sorts of things that were so new to me. And But if they were doing it, then it must have been okay. So that's how I learned. And I, I imagine we did probably meet. That's crazy. Yeah, I, yeah, I was there 80... Well, I didn't... First time I was in New York, I lived uptown, uh, so I didn't know. But when I was hanging out at Life Cafe, it was 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then, for uh, sure. And I'm sure I was there. So do you think you, what would happen if you hadn't worked at Life Cafe? I would your life be totally different, do you think? I think so. Um, I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, when I look back at it, it's weird to think that uh, how everything was very much in alignment. You know, when I moved out of Jersey, it's because I didn't, I didn't get into college. I couldn't have gotten into college if I wanted to. I got a 760 on my SATs. You get 400 for just signing your name. And <laughs> You got your name wrong? What happened? <laughs> I, I showed up drunk, you know. I showed really? up. Yeah, I stayed out all night long with my girlfriends partying, you know. I showed up wearing the same outfit from the night before, which would have been a pair of skin-tight, um, stonewashed purple jeans mm. with five-inch black pointy-toed pumps and, you know, like... yeah just wasted and took my SATs and knew that I wasn't, I I knew even if I had shown up sober, I wasn't going to do very well. And so I think by showing up drunk, just, you know, gave me an excuse why I didn't do well. And then after that, I was working in Krausers, which was like a kind of like the 7-Eleven of the time, like on a local level, it was a little convenience store, and stole the money to be able to move to New York City. Like I worked the cash register and I was doing a lot of drugs um, but no more than my friends, you know, you, you, you grew up in a small town, uh, 30 minutes from Manhattan and we had access, uh, we we're bored essentially. Mm. So, you know, I, st- I smoked my first cigarette at eight, started drinking and smoking pot at like 12, 13 mescaline and LSD at 15 Coke. And so I knew if I didn't get out of where I grew up, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, if I didn't get out. I would get sucked into that vortex of small town life and probably end up marrying my high school boyfriend. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that wasn't right for me. But I didn't have a lot of alternatives. Mm. So getting to New York City was going to be one of them and couldn't afford it. Couldn't, my parents weren't going to give me money for that. Um, and so I stole the money, got to New York City and started doing you know, a lot more drugs because now I had access. Um, you know, I was working, besides Life Cafe, I worked in a lot of nightclubs. Mm. Limelight, MK, Girl Year Club, um, Paradise, Peggy Sue's, Cat Club, a lot of gay clubs, Click Club, um, uh, uh, Sheescape. You know, there were, I, I did, I did, I worked. And you, you know, were 17, 18? 17, 18, nine, yeah. I worked in, mm. uh, up until I left, I worked in nightclubs. You know, first as a waitress, then as a hostess, or hostess, waitress, bartender, door person, mm. and kind of in in that trajectory, and uh, 
and it didn't matter. You know, I was working in clubs well before I was of age to be able to serve and served anyway. And I look at it as it could have gone either direction. Had I not been exposed to yoga and holistic wellness, it kind of sprinkled into my brain. I think I would have been magnetized towards more drugs, more alcohol, especially because I was so young. Uh, even though I, ex- I, I exuded confidence, you know, anyone at that age, I was insecure, wanted to fit in, um, went along with the crowd. And I think I would have been motivated to party even more. But yoga, it, it happened very naturally. Suddenly the drugs didn't feel good in my body. Well, first it was the food, you mm. know, the meat didn't feel good. The sugar didn't feel good and gave that up. It wasn't a lot of thought. It just kind of happened. Then the um, drinking went, then, or the drugs went, then the drinking went, then the cigarettes. That was the last. Really? And that was the kind of the hardest to let go of. But it happened, it wasn't like, well, I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I need to now, you know, uh, address that. Thankfully, my system wasn't designed towards um, addiction. And had it been, definitely. Like I, I set myself up for addiction, but I was able to quit just very naturally at a very young age. So I stopped doing everything by the time I was, um, I'd say uh, I, I was t- 22 when I quit smoking cigarettes. So I had stopped everything you know, prior to being 22 and haven't drank, smoked, done drugs or anything like that since, except ayahuasca, mm. uh, which I've done. But other than that, you know, I've lived a, a sober life by choice, not by necessity. And you say you're not designed for addiction. So if you smoked a cigarette or took a drink, you're, are you worried you'd get back into it? No. 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 So it's not... It's not in my system that way. Right. I could drink if I wanted to. I just choose right. not to. Right. I could... Uh, I mean, I don't want to do drugs, but I, I don't... My system would not put me back to the height of my drug use back right. when I was 22. I just didn't have that. It, it's not a disease for me right. um, as it, it is for so many. Um, I was really fortunate because yeah. I did everything in my power <laughs> to, yeah. to, to move into that direction. It just, thankfully, it never grabbed my system. Were you, was there something beyond boredom that was leading you in, into all that stuff? With drugs and alcohol? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I experienced uh, I experienced child, childhood trauma, and I had obsessive-compulsive disorder as a kid, although mm-hmm. it would not have been... Uh, it wouldn't have been diagnosed as OCD because that wasn't a term used at that time. I, was, I had quirky behaviors, but as a way to self-regulate. In the same way people would use drugs or alcohol to self-soothe, I used what's called patterning. And patterning would be, I was obsessed with even numbers, fours and eights. Mm. So I had to do things in even patterns to feel better. And if I didn't, I was afraid I would, uh, this, this connects back to not having any connection with God. In some ways I, I became God because if I didn't do these patterns, I was afraid someone I loved would die or get sick. And so by doing these patterns, I got to play God and control their destiny to make sure that nothing bad happened to them was dependent upon me doing certain things. Mm. And so I struggled secretly uh, for years, uh, except my family knew and they would fuck with me. My brothers would, you know, my thing was, uh, everything was about balance. 
had to be balanced. So if my brothers came behind me and would poke me on a shoulder and I wasn't paying attention, then they'd whisper in my ear, you out of balance? My whole nervous system would just jack up and they would need to touch me on the other side, like a certain amount until my body kind of recalibrated. And But outside of that, people weren't aware of it. But I did quirky things. It wasn't until I moved to New York City where those behaviors accelerated because I was away from my family. I was very young. I was getting exposed to a lot of drugs. Um, I didn't have the support system that I had growing up, especially my mother. And my behaviors and my fear of death and and people dying, everything heightened. So um, I had to... Uh, I couldn't leave my apartment building without, I had to count the stairs uh, from my door to the bottom landing, 56 stairs. And I had to do that four times and check the doorknob. And it just felt like it was... uh, Four times you had to go up and down four times? Up and down, every day. And even though I know the door is locked, it's not about that. It was about self-regulation. And so, yeah, doing drugs was, and drinking at that time was a way to feel better, to physically feel better in my body because I had anxiety. Mm. And I wouldn't have understood what anxiety was at that time. I didn't know I had trauma at that time. So my nervous system was doing what what it does for everybody. And my psyche was just trying to find ways to create control and balance and to feel normal. Mm. And so it wasn't until uh, yoga... And then therapy, where I was able to understand more about trauma and about, because it lives in the body, and about self-regulation, because yoga affects the nervous system. But the thing about yoga, which is what I see in the the popular yoga today, is that it can be just a bandit on the wound. It's a temporary feel-good, like any drug. I had to get underneath to the core of the issue and unpack that for real healing to occur. Wow. Yeah. Yoga for you. I can see how yoga plays a role in your life. That's absolutely, I mean, your survival in a way, psychologically, Mm -hmm. because yoga is all about physical balance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you do a posture, you always do the counter posture. Mm -hmm. Everything's about seeing the body symmetrically and all the movements and yeah. Wow. Interesting how that, beautifully it fits with you. But that kind of fucked me up at first because I remember the first time going into a, a simple mountain pose. You know, you're just standing straight. And all of a sudden I noticed one hip is higher than the other. Ah. One shoulder is higher than the other. I never noticed those things before. And I can feel the anxiety in my body. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to manage these, what I, what I would have known as a sensation, this irregular sensation. And I remember being in a pose, downward dog, and the teacher came by, kicked my foot accidentally. And all this anxiety came up for me in the pose. But I was also a dissociator, meaning you would never know on my face that I had any anxiety. Mm. I always looked calm and grounded because I would just check out. And But in my mind, I'm starting to obsess on how I can get the teacher afterward, before I leave the studio, how I can trip and find a way to kick his other foot so that it, with my other foot, so that I can find the balance without making it weird. And it was always weird. And then the teacher says this randomly to the class, breathe and everything changes. And I heard it, so I took a deep breath, exhaled, nothing changed. Actually, the anxiety got worse. Like I can feel it as a sensation. My heart is beating faster. I can feel heat in my face. The thoughts are spinning. My mind is really grabbing onto the obsession. 
I breathe again and I breathe again. And I don't know if it's the fifth breath or the 50th breath, but suddenly something shifted in my body. I could feel the anxiety dissipate and I was able to leave the studio without tripping over the teacher and trying Mm. to replicate the move. And that was key to my healing at that time was this breathe and everything changes because right after that, the next morning, I leave my house, I count the fifth, my apartment, I count the 56 steps, I get to the bottom, I go to turn to go back up the stairs and I stop. I sit down at the bottom stairs and I start to breathe and breathe. And I will not let myself leave this apartment until I just keep staying centered in my breath. And again, I don't know how many breaths I was there for, but something changed, Mm. something shifted and I left the building. And I realized that there are tools that you can use to manage anxiety because that's what I started to realize is what I have and that my body had created very clever survival skills to be able to manage the overwhelm that I felt within the unconscious and that these tools, were they worked amazingly when I was eight, when I was 10. They didn't work as an 18-year-old or living in New York City trying to you know figure out life and the drugs and alcohol were the way in which I was avoiding the big feelings. So by doing yoga, learning how to breathe and letting go of the drugs and alcohol, it put me in that moment where I actually have to experience my feelings. That's when shit gets real. Mm. And that's why when I talk about spiritual bypass, what I see often is that people are dancing around the big feelings. But if you stay in yoga long enough, you can't avoid it because you move, you breathe, the emotions that live within our tissues come to the surface. And suddenly you're confronted with, first it looks like fidgeting and then anger and then projection. But the longer you hang into the experience, you get underneath the irritation and the anger and you get to grief. And that's when everything changes. Mm, So, you know, as you were talking, I was, you mentioned fidgeting and the anger. I was thinking about uh, Kubler-Ross's five stages of, Mm -hmm. and then you said grief. Yeah. It's always grief. Yeah. It's what masks everything that's on top of it. It's going to the vulnerability. Uh, you know, the personal grief, the collective grief, ancestral grief. It's what lives in our body, but we're not, it's not validated within our society to really, it's the feminine, you know, it's, it's, it's not supported to go into the vulnerability because for a lot of us, it's equated to weakness. And so we haven't been taught good skills. So we're taught suppression. And this is what's critical to the yoga practice. See, yoga teaches us there's no separation between the mind and the body, that everything is connected. Um, that, that's, that's the whole purpose of, of yoga, is understanding that interdependency. If this is true, then it means there's no separation between the mind and the body, that everything we think, feel, or experience, whether in this lifetime or lifetimes before, whether in current times or ancestrally, culturally, historically. That information lives within us and makes us who we are. Well, there's something that's called trauma. And trauma is, usually when we think it's trauma, we think shock trauma, those unimaginable events that are often one-offs, you know? And so we often think, well, I don't have trauma. You know, I wasn't in the war. You know, I wasn't raped. You know, I didn't experience, you know, violence. But there's developmental trauma. And this is really important because everyone experiences some form of developmental trauma, but what might be traumatic to me might not be traumatic to you and vice versa. So bullying, death of a loved one, divorce. Usually these traumas happen before we have the ability to express our big feelings. So trauma happens, chemicals released from the brain, they flood the body, 
and were put into fight, flight, freeze, or fold. In that moment of overwhelm, our body contracts. It has to out of survival. It's something happened, the body shuts down and it does what it needs to do. It shunts off the different, you know, the different systems. In that contraction, there's an imprint of that narrative. Whatever just happened is now imprinted. Well, in the wild, when animals experience trauma, they literally shake it off like a possum. It plays dead and if you, uh, what will happen is the possum will start to shake and it will discharge the energy. Mm. So when it comes out of whatever that state is, it just gets on with its day. Mm. It's not carrying the trauma of the chase. We are actually hardwired to do that also, but we don't. And as a result, we suppress the energy. And energy is real, you know, like this mic, the cup, your body, my body, it's energy we can see. Energy is, uh, it has information. And love is a vibration with information. Um, But so is hate and shame and fear and grief. These are subtle energies that we all experience, but often live suppressed and impact us. Well, when we experience trauma, fear, rage, shame, guilt, grief, those energies have no place to go. So they stay in our bodies. If our parents raised us in a way where they support us in crying and raging and using whatever language we want to use to express whatever we're feeling, we have an opportunity to release the energy. But we don't. So that suppressed energy becomes tension. And that tension is cumulative, meaning every single time that child goes up against a situation that reminds them of that original insult or assault, even in the most subtlest of ways, their body will contract once again out of self-protection. And so that that accumulation becomes our adult adult self. So in our adult self now, what happens is we meet on the street, you say something to me, it triggers me, and my first impulse is to either react and power over you or respond probably the way I did as a kid and withdraw and go power under. And that's the way we operate as adults, creating separation, the opposite of yoga. And so what happens in yoga, you stretch, you breathe, you move the energy, and all of the, the, that, that vibration with information that's living in the cells starts to discharge. But our nervous system doesn't have the evidence that it's safe. So we fidget, we get annoyed, we react, we project, rather than just stay with the discomfort. Hmm. So I'd love to do a yoga class with you. <laughs> See, isn't it inspiring you to get back on the yeah, mat? Yeah, it is. That's yeah. What, yeah, that's what yoga's about. Yeah. We talk about yoga. Are we talking about Hatha yoga? Are we talking about all these commonalities to Kundalini and all yeah. these different types of yoga? Yeah. Do you specialize in one area? I know you you go around the world teaching, right? Yeah. You're a you're a big shot in the yoga world. Yeah, apparently, I'm, I'm told. <laughs> yeah. I've been told that too, but <laughs> I don't I don't really relate to it that way. I feel I just work my tail off. I travel all over the place and I teach and I love it. It's my art. It's that's my self expression and it's. Uh, Uh, I teach a form of yoga called vinyasa flow, which just means linking movement with breath. It's a, there are systems of yoga. Iyengar is a system, Ashtanga is a system. Um, Systems of yoga are are a little bit more patriarchal and that's a top-down model where there's a guru that's attached. The guru, guru 
sets the standards of whatever the tradition or system is. And any teacher within that system is responsible for following the languaging, the semantics of that guru and not going rogue. Well, vinyasa flow goes rogue in that it's influenced by these traditions, but it does not have a guru that's attached to it. Therefore, Mm. it's more creative. Mm. That means that someone like myself, I I can take from all the different traditions and filter it through my own creative process and express it through that particular unique lens without having to be a part of any kind of a do- any dogma. Mm. There's positives to this and there's negatives. The negatives is in that you probably went to one class one day and you loved it, went to another person's class the next day, they're teaching, let's say they're teaching vinyasa flow but they're teaching it totally different. Right. So there's because because it's creative and because they're not regulated. Right. They can do whatever they want. But right. it's hard for the student then to get rooted. And but for someone like myself who um I'm as 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 a social justice activist as someone who has been so committed to leadership I'm not a big fan of the patriarchal system that's hierarchical that way. I'm more invested in the feminine system of leadership, which is shared power, which is more democratic, um, not feminine, masculine as gender, but more of an archetype. And so I rejected these systems because it forced, it, it wouldn't allow me to express spirit the way in which it moves through. And spirit is creative. It's an ever evolving, um, interpretation. My understanding of spirituality today will evolve, um, and grow and change as I get older and more experienced. And what I would never want to have happen is someone to come in and say, here's what spirituality is. Here's what yoga is. It doesn't allow for any, um, any accountability and for the individual, for their own process. And so I rejected that at a pretty, er, pretty, pretty early on in my experience of yoga. I saw the dogma and I was just like, yeah, I'm not doing this. So when I realized there, were, there was a way around it, it required me to study in these traditions because they're invaluable mm. and to immerse myself in all the gifts, but not align myself with the dogma um, and the guru-disciple relationship. So that's the style of yoga I teach. Mm. Which it's interesting. It has a name, but it's really your style. Each teacher is doing it in their particular way. Yeah, it's a genetic vinyasa yoga, flow Mm. yoga. Mm. Uh, It's yeah, it's generic. It's generic um, because uh, some teachers use music. I don't. Um, Some teachers break out dancing in the middle of a class. Uh, Some teachers are very linear. Bring in spirit. Don't bring in spirit. And no one can say it's either right or wrong. Right. It just is. What what do you how do you feel about hot yoga? I'm not a fan of hot yoga only because maybe if you're 24 years old it doesn't matter but as you get older you want to heat your body up from the inside out. It's mm. it's healthier for your body. And especially as you get older that that external heat can really compromise the hormonal system and it actually wicks you of energy, depletes you mm. of it. So you're going to feel high as a kite and get very warm, very hot which helps to open the muscles, et cetera. But it's not a natural way for your, bo- for your body to open. So you can see more injuries as a result where mm. the muscles might open, but the fascia won't. Uh-huh. And, you know, so that, me- that can in time compromise the joints. So it's not my thing. But again, uh, like, I-, I really resist 
saying like, well, this is not yoga and that's yoga because whatever gets someone through the door and whatever brings them to the mat is the way in which they're going to evolve. I think of my dad who's dead now, but my dad was a yoga teacher, but he became a yoga teacher way after I did. Oh, at, interesting. At, uh, yeah, he became a, he started doing yoga at 50, became a yoga teacher at 60, but was dead at 67. But when he first started getting into yoga, um, I remember my dad was a, was a, um, hardcore athlete very in his body and had been since he was very young and he'd made fun of me for years about yoga you know I you know I come from a kind of a more of a blue collar environment you know this kind of stuff is all you know a little squishy feely unicorn strawberries some my dad busted my chops about it a lot and but you know as fate would have it one day finally decided to try it kicked his ass and he got into yoga in a huge way and one day he calls me up he's like how long do you think it'll take me to get into full lotus and i said well dad you know because you are already strong and flexible you know but it with proper practice and with a lot of focus and good training i think you'd be able to do this in a year and he says i bet i get this in three months i'm like dad so he would call me from he had like a hot tub um jacuzzi thing in his in his bathtub and he'd call me from the tub and he'd be cranking his knees, cranking his knees, you know, trying to, he's like, I got one side. I'm like, all right, dad. Three weeks, he calls me up from the tub and he's in full Lotus. And he's just like, he is proud and he's excited. And I'm like, dad, this is not what yoga is. <laughs> this is not what the practice is all yeah. about. And I start to lecture him. Yeah. So here's a quote from my father. He says to me, he listens for a little bit. And then he says, shut the fuck up. <laughs> And and I said, what? And he goes, he said, I've been watching my body uh, decline. He said, I over the years, I've watched what my body couldn't do. Yeah, I've watched the tension. He said, I've watched my hamstrings tighten. And I've, I started to accept that as I get older, that I suddenly am going to become decrepit. He said, ever since I've gotten into yoga, every day I see improvements in my body. Every day I set goals and I watch my body respond to these goals. He goes, I am happier. I am more confident. I am more inspired. He goes, who the fuck are you to tell me what my yoga is or isn't? Hmm. And I was humbled and I was like, you know what, dad, you're right. Hmm. You're right. Now cut to my father and I in New York City at an Ashtanga yoga class. And we're in, he's in this pose called Marichasana uh, D. And it's an, ex, an intense twist and a lot of things going on with your hips and your knees. And the teacher adjusts my father and I hear a pop. And I'm, I, I say, Daddy, you okay? And he just nods his head because my dad's tough. Teacher gets him to the other side. I hear another pop. And afterwards, we, you know, we leave the studio and my father's quiet as he usually is, but we get to the car. Now, anyone who has a New Jersey dad is going to understand the relevance of what I'm about to say. We get to the car and my father hands me the keys and says, you drive. Now, my father would never let me drive. It, like, it's just not what, you, it's not what the Jersey dads do. He drives. I'm in the passenger seat, if I'm lucky. For my father to hand me the keys and say, you drive, means that he's hurt. And he can't drive. And so I took those keys like, oh, shit. So my father blew out both his knees. But it forced him then to go into Iyengar and into all these alignment-driven classes. And it transformed his practice. And it inspired him to get into teaching. And so that injury, that, that dogma, that aggression, and that, that, that was a part of what he had to work it out. And that injury actually was a huge blessing. Because it made him step back and realize where it was coming from a 
an unhealthy place, but a purposeful place. And so I don't look at that moment where he blew out his knees or where he was forcing himself to get into Lotus as bad. It was predictable, but it was the path he had to walk through for reconciliation. But it humbled me. So I'm not quick to tell someone what yoga should and should not be because I don't know what's going to bring them to a sense of themselves Mm. and that kind of internal reconciliation. Mm. So if someone wants to do hot yoga, good, you know, good with that and stay open to the other forms that can also bring more, perhaps more depth or color to their experience. Mm. Yeah. You're talking about your dad. I was thinking about my friend, Joe Rogan. Don't know. You know who he Mm -hmm. is? Yeah. He's super into yoga. And he's super competitive, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And he's a tough guy, and he works out, and he does his jujitsu and fighting, and uh, but he also does yoga. And last time I was talking with him, I, I was doing yoga at the time, and I said something about like you know how humiliating it is because I go to this like old lady yoga class, mm-hmm. and he and he was like, "Those old ladies will kick your ass, oh, man. Yeah. Those old ladies, <laughs> oh man." I go, and there's oh, these old ladies are doing things I can't even get close to it, and it's, mm-hmm. it's funny. Yeah, it's yeah. funny if you if you get competitive about it, you mm-hmm. know, anything can be problematic. But you see, I would love Joe in my room because it's there's a. I remember there was this guy Jim. Jim was this big guy, muscle bound, and he would come into my class. He loved the workout. <clears throat> he would do extra pose, um, push-ups between the poses, rip up the yoga mat during meditation or shavasana, <clears throat> that final resting pose. He'd salute me and walk out of the room because oh, yeah. he was not going to. I got gonna, no time to nah. lie here. Yeah. And everyone would say to me, doesn't Jim drive you crazy? And I guess he should have, but he just didn't. I was happy he was in the room, you know, even though he was so aggro. Well, one day maybe six years of knowing, of having this dynamic. I'm talking about something, you know, could have been love, it could have been forgiveness, who knows what it was. But I look over at big gigantic Jim and he's in child's pose in the middle of the class, which is unheard of. Mm. He's on his knees, his head is on the floor, you know. So I kind of gingerly walk over to him and I can see his back is shaking. Mm. So I know he's crying. So I leaned down, you know, I put my hand on his back and I said, how you doing there, cowboy? Which I don't know why I said that, but that's what came out of my mouth. How you doing there, cowboy? Just trying to make light. And he looks up at me, tears pouring down his face. And he goes, I don't know what's happening. And I wanted to burst out laughing because it was so adorable. (laughs) But at the same time, I was so happy for Jim because it took six years of all that work to break the tension, to break that armor for him to connect to something. It didn't make those six years purposeless. It was just, that was just what was in his ego and in his body, his self-image, and it cracked. Well, Jim would come into my class from that point on. He looked terrified every time he did. He would stay for meditation, but he wouldn't meditate. He would just stare at me while I was talking. I didn't care. Well, Cut to Jim ended up making, like, quitting bodybuilding and all that stuff. And he became a teacher specializing on teaching men and helping them to connect to their own vulnerability. Mm. He's an incredible teacher Mm. as a result of that. So I think about Joe and I'd be like, come on, Joe, come in my class because it's about sensation. Yeah. And that's what yoga teaches you. Stay with the sensation because there is a narrative that lives underneath that sensation that is begging for recognition. And sometimes when we're aggro, it's because we're avoiding our own vulnerability, <clears throat> which is my guess. I don't know you, Joe, but is my well, guess, as I mean, we all do, we avoid. He's Joe's an interesting cat because, you know, he is, he's like the man's man, you know, mm-hmm. like world famous for being, you know, everybody wants to be Joe. But he's very, the first time I hung out with him, 
on his podcast, we talked about, you know, I, I was kind of getting at like, why, what are you afraid of that you need to be so armored and, you know, armed, Mm -hmm. you know, like you need to be spend so much of your life learning how to fight. Who are you afraid is going to attack you? Mm -hmm. You know? And very readily, he talked about his stepfather abusing Mm -hmm. him and growing up in a really poor part of Boston and getting his ass kicked. And he was a small kid. And he's very much in touch with Mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of his life is a reaction to having, um, to feeling very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's, to his credit, he's not um, avoiding that kind of knowledge and well, self-knowledge. That's amazing. Which I think is why he does yoga, because yeah. it, it gives him a balance. Mm-hmm. You know, he's super obviously into his body, but, you know, hit the heavy bag for a while yeah. and then go hang out with the old ladies. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that is yeah. balance. That's, that's, is. that's wonderful. Do you find that happens a lot in class that, that people get to a point where they're because they're sort of peeling away the layers of the onion by loosening their body and getting more in touch with these embedded muscular narratives, or I don't know the right phrase to use, but when you hit that, that these dormant buried emotions come to the surface, Mm -hmm. you have people breaking into tears a lot or or having all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ha- it's a phenomenon in yoga. It's just if you do yoga long enough and you're really present to the experience, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you have an emotional response to it. So I see it, you know, I, in my experience, because I see so many bodies and mm. I do this work so often, it's rare that I don't see that in a mm. class. You know, the onus is on me as a teacher to understand that phenomenon and know how to work with it without shaming it or thinking it should be different and helping the students uh, normalize that experience, that vulnerability. Uh, That's what I unfortunately don't see a lot in the yoga teachers today is because, because they're not doing that work on themselves. It's hard then when a student does it and it, Mm. it, and it happens. I could teach the crappiest class and I have, and still have a student go have an incredibly deep emotional uh, experience because it's the body it's the tension is releasing it helps sometimes if I say something that it, it connects the mind and the body but it doesn't always work that way so you can be a brand new yoga teacher and have someone release and then get nervous think that maybe you did something wrong or did something bad and then right. try to fix it right. say something inappropriate put your hands on them when perhaps that's not what's needed in that moment and so my hope for young yoga teachers is they 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 take trauma informed yoga for themselves they study it and they look at it within their own bodies so they can sensitize themselves to this human phenomenon and so when it does happen it's not scary to them that they know how to anchor it in in the space and and use it as a way to move someone through that process without directing attention onto the student but that's a whole that's a whole skill set it's the way you describe the experience of of yoga, teaching yoga, and and, and studying it yourself is so therapeutic. It, it's mm-hmm. so wrapped up in self knowledge and you know digging deeper and facing your fears and vulnerability and all that. And you mentioned that you've done therapy, psychotherapy yourself. Yeah. How early in the process did you start doing therapy? Eighteen. Oh, so in yeah. when you were in New York, so yeah. it really they they happened together for you. Yep. Do you think that your if you had done the yoga without the therapy? No. 
it wouldn't have worked the same. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think it was, for me, it was the both because mm-hmm. I, I know the practice of yoga and there's some there's some patriarchal elements within the the sacred texts. There's a lot of detachment that is like a goal within the right, practice. Right. But detachment without awareness is dissociation. Yeah. And so I see that there are some aspects of this tradition that don't allow us to really peel back the layers of our own humanity and also suggest that anger and rage and shame and guilt and grief are something that are unspiritual or somehow bad and we should avoid them. Whereas in therapy, you're being taught to be in relationship with those shadows. And that's yoga is relationship. It's connection. You can't know the light without the shadow. And so therapy taught me how to be in relationship with that, take ownership for it. It helps me then to empathize when I meet someone else who's in their shadow, not to think that it that it should be different is like okay they're just in their shit right now and here's how you navigate that so with I feel fortunate that I got into you into therapy I'm still in therapy I'm committed to that practice Um, especially because in my line of work there is so much projection if I wanted to feel good about myself all I have to do is book a class because I'm going to get a hundred people telling me I changed their lives that I'm fabulous. It's a, it's a drug. It's a, it's seductive. Mm. So I've been like kind of in on the joke of that for a very long time. And knowing that simultaneous to doing the work that I do in the world and holding the seat of authority, I need to make sure that every week I stay in check, that I do mm. not buy my hype, that I look at the bigger picture of why I'm doing this and what my role in is in this and stay clear. Otherwise, that becomes its own yoga. Right. I'll get my ass handed to me right. because right. it's all ego. And so my hope always is anyone who has the resources to practice yoga, um, it's a great tool. It's not the only tool. There are many other kinds of tools that include the program. You know, there's so many ways in which we get insight and information that connects us body, mind, and spirit. Um, but unpacking it requires, a, you know, a, a good reflector, you know, someone who can, who knows how to navigate the human consciousness and the ways in which we manipulate and lie to ourselves mm. and can help us to be accountable for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying about yourself as a yoga teacher applies to therapists as mm-hmm. well. A, a therapist really should be seeing another therapist yes. to help them, as you say, keep grounded, keep the ego in check and and deal with the stuff that's coming at them from Mm -hmm. the energy that's coming from yeah how do you deal with eroticism in yoga because i i know i i would fall in love with you in like one class Uh, thank you first of all first of all thank you um what i will say is that uh i first of all i'm dealing with um uh my population is is mostly women and not to suggest that a, a woman wouldn't fall in love with me, like that, that there's not that transference. Um, but how do I explain this? Um, in all the years that I've been teaching, which is since 1994, I've had only four men and two women hit on me in all that time, which is, I, I think, very unusual within my community. Hmm. And when it's happened, my response is usually this, like, first of all, thank you. And no, but thank you 
because mm. it doesn't happen. And I think it's because of me. Um, I don't, I'm aware of that energy. I have to be aware of the energy because I'm human. It's not like I don't walk into a room and think like, oh my God, cute boy. Mm. You know, that happens a lot. Mm. But if I think, oh my God, cute boy, and I'm not in my center, that energy is gonna come out of my body onto that person when I touch them. Mm. And it's gonna hook them. It's so easy easy to seduce. Mm. It's so easy to manipulate. If I wanted to uh, get hit on all the time, it would be effortless. Right. And I, it's on me. I expect my students to get attracted or to be repulsed or to have whatever projection they're going to have. That, right. that, that's, that's expected. But the responsibility is on me to make sure that there's a boundary, that I'm clear in myself when I put my hands on someone else, what, what my intention is when I touch them. And if I am attracted to a student, to take it to therapy and work it out and to make sure that I'm clear on what that's about. Um, and so I'm aware of the eroticism. I just don't uh, create an environment to magnetize it to me. And so as a result, in 25 years of teaching, I don't get hit on, I don't get flirted with. Mm. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Now, the woman side of me is like, hey, like, you know, that's why I say like, thank you, like right. throw the old girl a bone. Right. And that will never happen. Mm. Um, and if it was to happen, I mean, I've been in a long-term relationship, so it's not gonna happen just out of practicality. Right. But if it was to happen, because it happens all the time, there would need, they could no longer come to my class. Mm. There would need to be a detox period because I can never enter into a relationship with a student where there's not gonna be an imbalance of power in that dynamic. Right. And again, I have to know that, not them. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of eroticism. There's a lot of that energy. And I'm also though, if you ever see me teach, I wear all black. Um, I'll wear black leggings, a black tank that covers my belly and a pair of black baggy pants over my leggings to neutralize, to desexualize myself. I have to be asexual in that environment. That doesn't mean I'm not sensual because there's that element within the teaching of yoga that requires um, a connection uh, to, to my senses. And, but sexual, it, it, it's just low-hanging fruit. These you're opening people they are so vulnerable yeah. and all i have to do is a look it would just be so easy and um and unfortunately i see too many yoga teachers mostly male uh, but not excluded to that um mostly male really taking advantage whether they're conscious of it or not to this environment where people are healing where there is transference and projection without understanding the responsibility that we have to that and so yeah it's a joke with all my girlfriends that you know that I just, I never get hit on. No one, maybe it's going on behind the scenes and there's like, you know, you know, like maybe they're whispering like, oh, I'd love to date her, but I don't hear it. And I'm happy about that. Like I'm yeah. proud of that because it means that I'm doing my job. Yeah. I love how seriously you take it. It's great. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, I come from a sort of, my wife's a psychiatrist and uh, I'm a psychologist. Mm -hmm. and So I sort of come at it from a clinical, I'm mm -hmm. hearing you. It's yeah. so... The way you approach it is so um, ethical and professional, and it's it's really refreshing. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I try to walk my talk, you know, but yeah. I'm also not going to lie. Like I'm also aware of my humanity. Yeah, so. well, and it, it is an erotic situation. People are dealing with their bodies. There's mm -hmm. vulnerability, as you say. There's release of tension. I mean, mm -hmm. it's inherently 
erotic in a way. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the yoga I do, there's music and, you know, there's beautiful people around and everyone's mm-hmm. into their bodies. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's, yeah. You have to really make an effort not to go there, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the name of your book that's uh, available for pre-order? Revolution of the Soul. Revolution of the Soul. Yeah. Revolution of the Soul. I, I just, it, it's, it, it goes into release uh, like this week pre-order, but September 3rd is when it's out and it's taken me three and a half years to write it and it everything that we talked about is the first half of the book Mm. because revolution of the soul when you see the title evolution is the word that will kind of pop forward so part one is the evolution of the soul part two is the revolution of the soul it's the now what so everything that we just talked about, the mind-body experience, trauma, um, how to reframe our narratives, how to understand the philosophy of yoga as a t- one of the many tools that we can use that include therapy as well as anger work and all these other things to discharge uh, energy, how that leads us not just to reframing, but to see a bigger spiritual picture to why things happen as they do and to connect to the God within rather than it be... Uh, you know, the, the, the patriarchal God in which is so dominant in our culture, but how to take accountability for our own spirituality, which I define as truth and love. And you can be an atheist and have a strong spiritual practice if you commit to truth and love. And uh, that's the first part of the book. The revolution of the soul is, is the now what? It's now that I'm happier and healthier. Now that I have skills where, you know, in conflict and in crisis, I don't want to rip my partner's head off. What do I do with this? And it moves us towards service and for actively working towards working, um, working towards changing the world uh, for the benefit of all. And yet that trajectory is also fraught with deep life lessons. Um, in yoga, we're taught we are all one. And that is true because of energy. But that to say that without understanding our differences, without understanding where we are not the same, perpetuates dominance. And it creates con- uh, this continuation of hierarchy, denying the fact that there are people who don't have access to resources, that there are people who are suffering. And in yoga, we're taught that our liberation is bound. So if we're not, if we're all not, if we're all not free, Nobody can be free, and that includes myself. So inevitably in the practice of yoga, you look from your mat outward into the world. So there's a lot of people in yoga that want to like be of service and go out there and help. But Revolution of the Soul unpacks that a little bit because unless you really begin to do, understand historical, ancestral, and cultural trauma, as a white, privileged person, my help is still dominance, my help is mm. still supremacy. Right. So I'm actually participating in the very behaviors that I'm saying I want to eradicate. So now shit gets real. Because as a white person, I might say I'm not sexist, I'm not racist, I'm not homophobic, I'm not transphobic, ableist, ageist, etc. But if we believe in the mind-body connection, there's no way I can't be based on my grandparents, based on my culture, based on my school, the religion in my environment. There's no way that that information to fear the perceived other is not in my body. So in a moment of conflict or crisis or when my nervous system gets deregulated and the primal part of my brain gets activated, I am no longer Sean wanting to be of service. I'm my grandmother who's a racist. And 
I have to be able to normalize this and take accountability for the ways in which I'm complicit to the oppression of others, where I benefit from the, the oppression of others, where I participate in it, because I do, we all do. And that's the revolution of the soul is accountability, is like, okay, you wanna change the world? This is what it looks like. You wanna dismantle the systems that are out there that are creating so much division and separation? Let's dismantle the systems within ourselves. So the revolution begins within. And the book is very progressive, it's, um, fairly radical for a spiritual book. It's dealing with a lot of a lot of deep, deep themes and that don't often get talked about uh, when you're dealing with spirituality because it's so confrontive. And but I wanted to model what it looks like to take accountability. So I own my own power and privilege. I own my own uh, bias and discrimination and then connect it back to the practices, to the teachings to help us to see that there are ways to unravel this so that when we do serve in the world, our service is coming from a more integrated place that we're recognizing again our uh, that our liberation is bound and what our responsibility is to that perceived other and uh, and how not to continue to perpetuate this dominance that is causing so much dis-ease in our planet and so that's the revolution of the soul it's about uh it's a call to action for all of us to wake up to speak truth to power to call each other in and up and to do what needs to be done in order to create a fair equitable just free safe peace-filled and loving world for all beings and it requires individual action from the inside out Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Try living in this head. <laughs> Jeez, that, that was great. That was like three paragraphs of perfection there. Well, Did you, you memorize that? That no. was fantastic. Thank you. No. Really nice. Uh, I'm just going to shut the hell up at this uh-huh. point, I think. Sean Corn, C-O-R-N-E. Nope. No? Nope. Corn like the vegetables. Oh. C-O-R-N. Why did I think there was an E Because there's the an end. E at the end of Sean. This is my parents, like Joe. Oh, my name is S E A N E. That's where the E is. C O R N. Okay. Born like the vegetable. Revolution of the soul, and people can pre-order that on Amazon. Amazon, yeah. And their they local can, independent bookstore, I'm sure. Um, sure, yeah. absolutely. And um, if they go to my site, SeanCorn.com, there's going to be all sorts of videos and things that I'm releasing for free um, prior to the release of the book. Um, all sorts of stuff are going to come. Slick way. website, by the way. Uh, I checked it out. Oh, really? It's, it's, nice. it's I haven't actually launched it yet. It like you're oh. only seeing one page. Oh, okay. It's gonna be slick though. Okay. So right. check out my new it slick website. Good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's gonna be um, it's gonna be beautiful. But it's gonna launch kind of at all at the same time. In September. Uh, the website, the full website, will launch sooner than that. But right oh, okay. now, there's like a holding page that's right. just like right. calling you in. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So pre-order that book, folks. And I know you're also going to do um, Anya's podcast, The Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Mm-hmm. So if people want to hear more from Sean, uh, check A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with Anya Katz. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, 
or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 